What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular story podcast. As always, I am very excited to be back here with another Midnight Myth episode. And you know, one of the reasons I am super excited today, Laurel and I both had pretty much a full night of sleep last night. It was pretty good. I mean, we had to get up once or twice to feed the gremlin after midnight, before midnight, at midnight, 12.05, 12.15, whatever. But we strung together some like three and four hour stretches. So we're feeling pretty refreshed right now. We had a full sleep cycle, if you will, which will be relevant to our subject today. Yeah, it's like we got a sleep doctor to come out and help us out. You know, before we had Arthur, who is in the room with us napping, and you might hear some sounds, and similar to other episodes, we're going to go until we either have said everything that we can say, or Arthur won't let us podcast anymore. If you're new here, there's Arthur. He is our today four-week-old son. Happy four-week birthday, Happy buddy. Happy month on the planet, dude. Yeah, your first you four an weeks. auspicious time to join the human race. It certainly won't be dull, I can say that. May you live in interesting times, as Terry Pratchett would say. Absolutely. So I've been thinking a lot about horror and the horror genre. One of the reasons I've been thinking about it is Steve and I, um, Steve Gundalunas, that is, the co-host of The Wheel of Ka, we are making our way through the second half of it, and it is so good. We've already published our first half Wheel of Ka episode, and I've been thinking about, and I put a Twitter thread about this on my Twitter, which is at Derek Jones 198, if you want to read it, how in the sort of pulp canon of literature, fiction, TV, the fantasy, science fiction, and horror, I kind of like liken them to a three-headed serpent in which fantasy would be the past, sci-fi would be the future, and horror would be the present. And if you think those are interesting thoughts, go ahead and read my Twitter thread. And if you retweet it, maybe we can get Stephen King to chime in. I doubt it, but (laughs) it'd be fun to see because I tagged Stephen King in it. And it's specifically about it. But I did want to talk some horror. And I'm in a Stephen King frame of mind. And with the COVID-19 pandemic raging and a newborn in the house, we can't really do anything but feed the baby put the baby down for a nap, and put something on TV, we recognized that 
HBO Max has streaming Doctor Sleep, which came out in the pre-pandemic times of 2018? 2019. 2019. That came out in 2019. So recently came out. Laurel and I saw it in the theater and we both had thoughts and we were like, let's rewatch this. And we rewatched it and we realized that we definitely wanted to do a podcast episode on it. We originally wanted it to be last week, but we just didn't have enough together for it. So here it is. We're going back into the horror genre. We're going back into the Stephen King multiverse and we're gonna talk Dr. Sleep. Yeah, and if you remember, if you've been listening to us for a while, uh, in 2019, in the lead up to Dr. Sleep being released, our Halloween special was on The Shining. Uh, And of course, Dr. Sleep is a sequel to The Shining, so uh, we are definitely gonna have some moments where we refer to the original text of The Shining here. So if you wanna go back and listen to that episode, I forget what number it is, but it's Halloween 2019, and the episode title was Everybody Gonna Shine, because I was on a Lizzo kick at the moment. Um, but that was a really fun episode where we got lots of history, lots of mythology, lots of talk about horror as well. And we have been through tons of Stephen King on The Midnight Myth, as well as Derek and Steve's side podcast, The Wheel of Ka. So if you're a Stephen King fan, go back and check out our episodes on Castle Rock, on The Shining, obviously, on The Outsider. We have definitely covered him before, and there's lots to say about his universe. And there's, what, 20 episodes on The Dark Tower? Exactly. <laughs> With Steve and I, because yeah. we reread the books. And then we also did um, we did Salem's Lot. We talked about Steve and I, and now we're talking about It. Our first half is up. We're reading the second half of It now. I might, I'm lucky if I get 20 pages in a day. Some days I get two or three pages. So it might take us a while to get through the second half of It. But let us continue to talk about Stephen King and the weird, amazing, and scary worlds he creates. Now, I have read the book, Dr. Sleep. Laurel has not read the book. So we're going to focus this conversation entirely on the movie. And maybe I'll slip in a little bit about the book here and there. But for the most part, it's going to be grounded on the movie, which means it came out in 2019. So please log into HBO Max, whether it's yours or our friends. We don't care watch the movie, and then join our conversation. Yeah, and I have read the book The Shining, so there may be some uh, moments where we refer to the book The Shining because although this is a pretty good adaptation of the novel Dr. Sleep, as I understand it, it also combines it with some of the original text of Stephen King's The Shining that was changed for the Kubrick film. So uh, there may be some spoilers for the original text of The Shining, but that's also spoilers for Dr. Sleep. Yep, absolutely. So let us move on, start with the show. But before we get too deep into it, before we really roll up our sleeves and get to work, Laurel, do your thing. Yeah, so we would love to hear from you. We are all over social media. We're on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. Uh, And one of the best things you can do for the podcast uh, that costs you absolutely no money at all, just five minutes of your time, is to leave us a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. So if you're enjoying what you hear, uh, baby sounds and all, please head over to your favorite podcast player and drop us a few words and a few stars uh, and help us get out there so other people can find the podcast. Tell a friend, tell a neighbor. If you don't like the podcast, tell your enemies. Those are the very best things that you can do uh, just to get 
this little community growing. Um, and then otherwise, we do have a Patreon and we have a merch store, which you can find on our website, midnightmyth.com. Uh, I did pause our Patreon contributions for the month of January, but they're going to go ahead and resume in February. So if you're a patron, you will see your pledges resume in February. So thank you so, so much for supporting us. Uh, and if you're not a patron yet, consider supporting us for as low as a dollar a month or up to however much you want to pledge. It helps us continue to make content. Yeah, if we have any multimillionaire listeners, we'll take a thousand a month. Yeah, we'll take a stimulus. Yeah, that's totally little, cool. Little podcast stimulus. Yeah, absolutely. We're not being greedy, multimillionaire, just a thousand a month. Yeah, that's nothing. That pays for daycare. Absolutely. That would really <laughs> help us do daycare, and you'd get more podcasts. Awesome. All right, so let's do the briefest of brief recaps. Dr. Sleep came out in 2019, and it is a sequel to the 1980 Stanley Kubrick adaptation of the Stephen King book, The Shining. It takes place with the lives of Danny Torrance. The movie begins where we get introduced to a group of characters called the True Knot, who find children that have the shine, they torture the children, that when they are being tortured, excrete this thing called steam, which they consume. All of the members of True Knot shine to varying degrees with different types of psychic powers, and consuming the steam elongates their lives and it seems to also give them immense pleasure. So they essentially travel around the country looking for shining children and torture and kill them. We then get to see grown-up Danny Torrance, who is a horrible alcoholic, and he is incredibly violent, travel to a small, quaint New Hampshire town where he meets a character named Billy, who has a slight bit of shine and who is an alcoholic himself and sponsors Danny into AA. Danny then starts to sober up, and as he uh, is going through AA, he meets a doctor which gives him a job at a local hospice um, nursing facility as the nighttime nurse. There, Danny Torrance and a cat who tends to sense when someone is about to pass on, they sit with the person who is dying, and Danny uses the shining to comfort them as they go to their eternal sleep, earning him the nickname Dr. Sleep. It is through this that we meet a young girl named Abra who seems to have the most comprehensive and powerful set of shining abilities. She can send out psychic singles through long periods of time. She can have psychic warfare with the true knot in her mind. She can also read minds and communicate telepathically. And she's got telekinesis. She can move things with her mind as well. And she connects with Dan Torrance and they become psychic sort of pen pals using a chalkboard Dan writes on and she can read it. She also senses the true knot as they kill a young boy who is a baseball, um, young little league baseball player and tortures and kills him. This gets her upset. And so she asks Dan to try and find this young boy's baseball glove so she can sense who these true knot are, and where they are. This plan does go well. However, it alerts the true knot and Rose the hat, the leader of the true knot to Abra's presence. The True Knot have a problem. There are not as many people who shine, and those who do shine do not shine as well. And without access to the steam, their older members are subject to illness. One of them named Grandpa Flick goes into something called cycling, where he painfully dies and turns into steam. Re recognizing that the True Knot's days may be numbered, Rose becomes obsessed with finding the young Abra. Seeing her psychic powers makes her think, they could keep her locked up and tortured for a long period of time and feed on that good shining steam. 
So the True Knot come after Abra, and Dan and Abra plan a trap in which they kill most of the members of the True Knot except for Rose the Hat. Now Dan decides that he and Abra must go on the road and go to a place that has inherent shyness and inherent danger to those who shine. He takes Abra to the Overlook Hotel, a condemned hotel that no one has lived in since the bloody events of the movie 1980, The Shining. Dan enters the hotel and sees that it has not changed since he, his mother, and his father lived there. He sits down at the bar and confronts the ghost of his father, presumably the ghost of his father, who offers Dan a drink, a drink that Jack Torrance could not refuse, but Danny Torrance does. Rose then comes in, and they try to psychically battle Rose in Dan's mind, but this battle fails as Rose has consumed all of the steam and is simply too psychically powerful. Then Dan does a last gambit trick. He unlocks psychic boxes he's built in his mind, which contain all of the ghosts of the Overlook Hotel who he has contained over the years, and they devour and kill Rose the Hat. But there is an unintended consequence as these ghosts then possess Dan Torrance, and they send his possessed body after Abra to kill her so that she could be trapped in the Overlook. But due to Abra's goodness and shining powers, she rescues Dan from this possession, and Dan has a moment to stave off the ghosts so Abra can leave, and Dan goes into the boiler room as it gets consumed in flames. He sees the ghost of his mother, and he burns down in the Overlook, having saved Abra's life. The last scene is of Dan's ghost and Abra talking the way that Dick Halloran's ghost talked to Dan in the beginning of the film, and Abra deciding to share her psychic abilities to shine on as she learns to capture the same ghosts that haunt Dan in the bathroom using the same psychic boxes Dan used. Whew. That was not brief. I kind of went on there. So that was not a recap. That was an adaptation. It was beautiful. It was, uh, listeners, you know Derek does these off the cuff if you've, been, if you've been listening for a while, but if this was your first time listening, you might have thought he was reading from notes, but he was not. That, that was completely off the top of his head. I go into my mind palace. Like yeah, Sherlock. You've locked them in boxes in the maze of the Overlook Hotel. And yeah, so I, but I do, I do mentally sort my thoughts before I come in here. It's not completely off the cuff. It's just not written down. Yeah. And yeah, that was not brief. I just kind of went on a tangent. There. I really liked it though. It sounded like you were adapting it to a new medium. The podcast medium. Yeah, it was great. All right. Enough praise for me. <laughs> Tell me. We've seen the movie twice. Yeah. We watched it about two weeks ago. We've been discussing it all the last two weeks. We've been thinking about it. Um, I know it's a new movie, so does it hold up really doesn't apply. But just tell me what are your thoughts, impressions, anywhere you want to go with this movie. Sure. So I'll tell you the first time I saw it in the theaters, um, I I did really like it, uh, but I came away from it with a sense that It was two movies stuck together in a way that uh, wasn't quite congruous. Uh, So it was the adaptation of the Dr. Sleep novel and then also this like redemption of the Kubrick film for Stephen King diehards who hated the changes that were made by Stanley Kubrick. Like that was the first impression that I had of it. And it didn't feel to me like the, you know, story of the True Knot and Abra and Dan's recovery was, uh, you know, quite on the same, 
was the same movie as the sequel to The Shining or The Redemption of The Shining. And then somehow watching it again just a couple of weeks ago, I was able to go in kind of knowing what I was going to see, um, feeling a little bit more comfortable with it, and it actually made a whole bunch of sense to me. So it started to feel a lot more harmonious, uh, and I started to feel a lot better about the film in general. It There's so much that happens and so many uh, fascinating characters in this that I really wish... Uh, you know, they had given Mike Flanagan a, a Netflix series like they have before. Uh, he did The Haunting of Hill House and so on. So, like, we know he can do the long-form format, and we know that this did not do terribly well at the box office. So part of me wishes it had been greenlit as a Netflix, you know, limited series because I think it probably would have caught on a lot better and maybe would have been more... Uh, critically successful as well. I think that giving moments time to breathe uh, and characters time to grow would have been great. That being said, I think Ewan McGregor's performance as Dan Torrance is really beautiful. He's an actor that I love and will pretty much walk, watch in anything. Um, and I think that overall, it's very successful at the themes that it's trying to portray uh, it's a really exciting thing for Stephen King fans to watch. I may not be a Stephen King diehard super fan, but I was able to appreciate a lot of the Easter eggs as well as a lot of the, uh, you know, resonant themes that uh, you constantly see throughout King's work. And to watch this character of Danny Torrance, of Dan, grow up and become somebody new uh, and really find a way to redeem himself and his father is a pretty wonderful experience. So overall, yeah, I do like the movie quite a lot. I want to uh, just flesh out a few things that you said there, um, just in the point of clarity. Yeah. Mike Flanagan is the director of Dr. Sleep. I don't know if we mentioned that. And he is someone, this is the second time he's adapted a Stephen King work to a the the silver screen, the first one I am blanking on. Gerald's I, Game. Thank you. I had it in my mind and then it disappeared. Should have written it down. Sometimes my mind palace fails me. <laughs> um, and then the other thing is that what you mentioned about the Stephen King diehards and writing the ship, the Stephen King superfans, the constant readers who praise the book The Shining over the movie, one of their gripes is that in the movie and book, they have very different endings. The Overlook Hotel, the boiler explodes in the book and it burns to the ground after Jack Torrance gets completely possessed by all the ghosts. That is precisely how this movie ends. And in many ways, it links those two endings together. And Stephen King has famously not liked the adaptation of The Shining, the movie by Stanley Kubrick for that very reason, among others, that it was changed. So I just wanted to clarify yeah. those two points. Right. I genuinely, genuinely like this movie a lot. I liked it in the theater. I had a similar reflection that maybe it was two movies, you know, pasted together instead of one. I think a lot of the reason I felt that way is as soon as the cinematic language shifts to Dan in the overlook and it's, man, it's the overlook. Yeah. It's the exact same thing from The Shining. That symbolic language, that cinematic language, if you will, calls him memories of The Shining, and it puts me into Kubrick. Yeah. And this movie is not Kubrick. And I think watching it the second time, knowing that was going to happen, makes that language switch a little easier and makes me 
mute down my memories of The Shining and allows me to go to where Dan is going. And where is Dan going? He is reliving the trauma of his past. Yeah. He is operating in a cycle. He is operating in a wheel. Ka is a wheel. And I'd like to take a minute and kind of discuss what I think is the overall motif of the movie, which is cycles, which is wheels, um, as well as with death, and how that movie relates to a concept in the Stephen King universe called Ka. Now, we have a side podcast called The Wheel of Ka, so it's something that I'm really big in. But the idea, if you're not familiar, it's fleshed out at length in the Dark Tower, that there is a force, kind of like fate, called Ka. People are free to choose up into a point, and Ka is there, and Ka will guide you, and it is a wheel, meaning that what goes around comes around. We are all trapped in this wheel of Ka. We see the ghost of Dick Halloran say the Ka is a wheel to Dan when he is telling him that Dan has a job to tutor and mentor a young girl who shines in the way that Dick Halloran had the job of tutoring and mentoring Dan Torrance. We see the word Ka above Abra's bed. There's a big A there with a little balloon animal, a little balloon animal that looks like a K to show the word Ka. And plus there are tons of Stephen King and Dark Tower references throughout. We yeah, won't mention the number them 19, all. number 217. Yeah. The Mark Industries, the Tet uh, Transportation, bus. Transportation. Yeah. yeah. So all of those are Dark Tower references. But to highlight Ka, Ka is a wheel. Ka is a cycle. How do we see this concept fleshed out other than when it's literally presented to us? First, when a member of the True Knot dies, they call it cycling. They are cycling through, and we see them going through a flesh, a spirit, a body, a skeleton, and we see it repeating until they just disperse into steam. That's how the True Knot dies. They cycle. But in other ways that we see cycling, we see Dan Torrance growing up to become a violent alcoholic, just like his father grew was. And often in abuse in places where people grow up under traumatic circumstances, such as the character Danny Torrance, I think being haunted and having your dad possessed is considered traumatic. They talk about the cycles of abuse, that the abused often grows up to become the abuser, and how therapeutically you must break those cycles of abuse in order to escape them so you don't pass on the abuse that you have. We see Dan Torrance trapped in this cycle. And we also see one last point here. We see life represented in a very circular manner. We see the movie go, the movie that takes place after the events of The Overlook going back to The Overlook. We see the people that, as they pass on, coming back to talk to people. We see the nickname that Dan had as a kid, Doc, after Bugs Bunny returning as he takes the mantle, Dr. Sleep, as the person to help people usher into their next phase. And the movie highlights that life does continue and go on, that it doesn't end, that Ka keeps on spinning even after you die. And lastly, the movie ends, the final shot is of Abra going into the bathroom the same way young Danny does, confronting the ghost from room 237 in the Overlook Hotel, the old woman in the bathtub, closing the door and locking her in her mental palace 
the same way that Dan had to do it. And the Ka, the cycle is complete. Yeah. Uh, and I like that you mentioned that Ka is this force that's similar to fate, but there is uh, there is still choice in the universe. There is still some element of free will. And I think we see that in Dr. Sleep as well, because while Dan at the beginning of the story is trapped in this cycle of abuse, is trapped in this seemingly inescapable pull to become just like his father, he's got two options, right? He can become Jack Torrance or he can become what Dick Halloran saw in him all those years ago. He can become Doc. Uh, the fact that Doc was his nickname early and then becomes his identity later suggests this sort of fluidity of time and fluidity of purpose for this character, but he really does have these two choices, and both of them represent the closing of a circle. So we could close the circle on you know, an alcoholic, violent, abusive Dan, or we could close the circle on Dan reuniting with Danny and something that, you know, I think is, is part of the, you know, it's been a year and a half since I read the book, but something that I think is part of the original shining book is, uh, Dan, yeah, Danny meeting with his future self, right? He meets with his future self and is confronted with what he can become. Uh, and so there are, you know, there are choices that we have. We can become what we think we're locked into by fate, or we can become the purest and best versions of ourselves. It just depends on our choices, our sheer will to overcome those, uh, you know, those huge forces that are set out before we're even born. And of course, our support system, which this movie really lays out that Dan gets a shot because of the extraordinary kindness of people like Billy, uh, and also because there are so many people in this universe who shine just a little bit, who shine just enough to look at a person like Dan and say, I think you're more than you're presenting right now. I think you're more than an unshaven, uh, down-on-your-luck, violent addict. I think that you can heal. I think that you have the opportunity to heal and I can give you that opportunity because, you know, because I'm here, because I've been where you are. Yeah. And I think if we ask ourselves the character, Dan Torrance, what breaks him out of the cycle of abuse? Um, it is, I would argue the fact that Dick Halloran was his mentor and Dick Halloran, whether he literally comes back as a ghost or metaphorically comes back to speak to him is kind of irrelevant. He has this sort of angel on his shoulder telling him that, you know what, you have a choice here. Don't take the money, Doc, from the woman that you slept with after a night of cocaine, booze, and violence, and sex. Don't take her money, but he does. And then when Dick comes back again, and when Dick says cause a wheel, he is telling him, Listen, I didn't have a choice. You walked into my kitchen. And when you walked into my kitchen, I had to mentor you. Why? Because Ka is a wheel. Abra just walked into your life now. You have to, you have to mentor her the way I mentored you. Yeah. And why? Because Ka is a wheel. Because it's going to come around full circle. Because the world is hostile and threatening. The Shining deals with the internal world of the self and the family, and it turns that world upside down onto its head and says, the very thing that's supposed to protect you from harm, your father, that the weapon that's supposed to shield you when you're young 
becomes the very thing that hurts and harms you and becomes possessed by evil itself. And in Dr. Sleep, it is not the family that gets turned on the head, but the outside world. The idea that there are those that will prey upon you, that will try to steal the very thing that makes you special, there's my son, and use it to consume your life force. And because that there's this hostile and threatening world, because this is a world of magic and monsters, Dan has an obligation to go and mentor uh, Abby, Abra. He has an obligation to do what Dick did for him. And that is how he can be redeemed. And it also leads him to the very place where it began. And he gets to sit at the same bar. He gets to look at the ghost of his father and he gets to break the cycle of abuse while completing the wheel of Ka by refusing the drink. Beautifully said, Derek. Thank you. Let's turn the page. I think we think it's a good good movie. Yeah. I think there's so much going on yeah, here. Yeah, incredibly worthwhile. I think it's one of those ones that's criminally underrated. I think it is just a well-made movie through and through. And I can't imagine sitting there being like, I'm going to adapt the sequel to The Shining, the greatest horror movie ever made from the greatest horror writer and arguably his greatest book ever written. I'm going to do the sequel. I can't imagine what type of pressure that is. And the incredible responsibility of trying to please both fans of the 1980 film and fans of the Stephen King novel and fans of Dr. Sleep in general. Like it's an incredible responsibility. And I think it was in good hands with Mike Flanagan. I think he's shown that he is a really respectful adapter. I think he has shown that he has mastery of atmosphere and that he can infuse horror with a kind of humanity uh, that is very Stephen King. You know, something that I have always, you know, realized about King when I'm reading his books, especially even his most terrifying books, like The Shining and Salem's Lot, is that he's kind of not a horror writer. Like, he writes characters and he writes drama that is really organic to the characters that just happens to be really scary sometimes. Yeah, I agree. Um, Steve, uh, Wheel of Ka Steve, constantly says it's not the the horror or the magic that gets him back to King. It's the character. So let's turn our, our keen eye to the Midnight Myth analysis. Watching Dr. Sleep, tell me, what did you think? Uh, did you see any cool things that you'd like to highlight? Yes, absolutely. So one of the things that really jumped out at me about uh, Dr. Sleep was that adorable kitty cat, right, in the hospice, uh, which I could just go on about how cute that cat was, but I think there is a little bit more to it that is a little bit interesting from the Midnight Myth lens. You talked about this in the recap, that the cat is able to kind of uh, sense through some sort of sixth sense that uh, some of the patients in the hospice are nearing death, and that allows Dan, Dr. Sleep, to go in and be with them in their final moments and help ease the transition to the next life. They both take on this role, the cat and Dan, as the kind of grim reaper or psychopomp or fairy man who takes you on to the next world. Uh, And what's interesting is this is based in a little bit of reality. Uh, Stephen King was inspired by the story of a cat named Oscar who had an article written about him in the New England Journal of Medicine a few years back. So Oscar, this cat, was adopted by the Steerhouse Nursing and Rehabilitation Center 
and he routinely visits patients' bedsides and curls up next to terminal patients just hours or days before they're about to pass on. He's got an uncanny ability to predict which patients are about to go. And this is a cat who's not like entirely friendly or cuddly most of the time. So it's a very unusual behavior for him to go and curl up next to a patient. Um, He's so successful that he's able to help care workers give timely warnings to families or call in chaplains to deliver last rites to these patients. There's Arthur. He's got a lot to say about this. Uh, No one knows how Oscar does it, though. There's really no one who's been able to figure it out. Mostly the, uh, the speculation around it is that he can maybe smell the acids and proteins that are secreted by patients as their organs fail, because your body obviously goes through a lot of changes when you start the death process. Uh, And after all, dogs are able to sometimes smell cancer in patients' urine or they can predict uh, seizures. So this is something that the animal kingdom uh, already has some sort of research around. Uh, But by combining this story, which is not an isolated story, like I've heard this before, that cats and dogs can sense things. And, And when I think about it, like when we first got pregnant, before I even had a positive test, I could sense that something was different because my cat's behavior changed. Like Claudius was cuddling up to me more than usual. He was being very protective of me. And I was like, I think he knows something I don't. So when you combine that with the existing and widespread folklore and superstition about cats, uh, I think you can understand why King would include this in a story like Dr. Sleep, include this cat as a a seemingly strange and uh, random detail Uh, Because cats have always been associated with the supernatural, right? They have been witches' familiars, or they have been these symbols of bad luck or good luck, depending on what kind of cat you see, uh, whether it's a black cat or a white cat, or uh, where you see it, whether it crosses your path, whether it's a full moon. uh, They have always been associated with these sort of liminal figures, with one foot in this world and one foot in the next, these animals with nine lives. So you put that together with this story of Oscar, who can sense a dying patient, and you get the sense that not only do lots of people in this universe shine just a little bit, but... So does the cat? Animals shine, yeah. Sorry, I was just jumping in there as Arthur was stirring. He's, uh, how's he doing? Is he doing all right? He's okay. All right, we'll keep going. Can I add a little to that? Or did you uh, want to say something? As Please add something. Well, you think of the, the animal, the cat, and the history of how cats got, quote unquote, domesticated, and how different that is from how dogs got domesticated. And I'll caveat this with no one really knows exactly how this happened, but there are theories. And the theory with dogs is that prehistoric times, Less aggressive wild dogs, wolves, coyotes, would come and hang out with groups of humans and not attack them. And humans learn certain benefits of having them around, such as warning about other predators, warning when other groups of humans might be approaching, as well as pleasure and enjoyment. So they kept the dogs and passed down through selective breeding the non-aggressive gene till we get to the cute and happy puppies that we have today, which are awesome. Conversely, the domestication of cats is a little bit different. In theory, they're not technically domesticated. People in cities used to like to keep cats around. Why? Because they would hunt vermin. They would hunt rats. So then they would feed them. 
then over time they would bring them into their homes. Maybe if you are an ancient Egyptian, they would be brought into the palaces and worshipped as living gods because of their sort of preternatural or supernatural abilities and senses they seem to have. Cats can do certain things that allow us to kind of feel like they do have this power. One, they're nocturnal by nature. They can see in night. The time darkest to us, the time when we are at our most vulnerable, is the time where the cat is most alive. And because they can see at night, their eyes glow at night, giving them this sort of creepy, spooky feeling. Two, if a regular house cat is left to their own devices with other house cats, they become what? Feral. They become undomesticated. They become wild animals. They literally have one foot in the domesticated door and one foot in the wild door. In the same way that we conceive of certain magical creatures, such as leprechauns, fairies, jinns, elves, having one foot in the natural, Witches, yeah. one foot in the supernatural, as straddling these two different planes of existence, cats live this life, and hence so much mythology, folklore, and supernatural telling of tales is wrapped up into our lives with cats. We tend to think of man's best friend as a dog. That's the phrase. I guess to make it more modern, humanity's best friend as dogs, right? Because we don't like using that term man to describe all people. (laughs) It's very inaccurate and very ancient. But in fact, at least in America, there are more domesticated house cats than there are dogs. Yeah. Who's really our best friend? Is it is it the dog or is it this sort of strange aloof, aloof creature yeah. who we are so delighted and tickled with but seems to have this foot in another world? And I don't say this to disparage dogs because I absolutely adore dogs. But just food for thought on how this mythology and folklore around cats happens and where it comes from and what we have seen and how King employs it in this is very expert and very cool. Yeah, I love that. Thank you for that context. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you have anything else? I've got some things I can bring up. Yeah, please go ahead. I'm really enamored with the concept of the steam. The idea that you can ingest the life force of a child who shines and get stronger psychic abilities and elongated life. At first glance, it feels, and I would say is very vampiric. And in many ways, when the true not discuss themselves, and in particular, when Grandpa Flick starts to cycle, and we learn that he is from ancient Rome, he's lived through the Middle Ages, that people speak his name, that there are statues of him, you get the sense that Grandpa Flick is the Dracula that once was, that he is the basis of many of the modern conceptions of the vampire. And in many ways, they are vampiric. Vampires, what do they do? They go around, they hunt people, they steal their blood, and they do that, and they gain supernatural powers and longer, if not immortal life. And there are some people who are like more attractive to vampires to feed on, depending on the literary tradition that you're looking at. You know, they might go towards a particular sex or gender, or they might go towards a person they have a psychic connection with to feed on because it is more satisfying to them than just the run of the mill person. Like the true knot seek out people who shine exceptionally. And then there's the um, folklore tradition of the boogeyman 
which is used at length in another Stephen King work, The Outsider, which we've done an episode on. But the True Knot also seem very boogeyman-like. Yeah. They come for your children. For children, yeah. When you're not looking, and if the children are misbehaving and not listening to their parents, or maybe have these strong psychic abilities that their parents don't understand, here come the True Knot to kidnap and take them away. So they have this sort of vampiric slash boogeyman quality. But in pure mechanics, what do they do? They take the steam. It is purified via pain, and they ingest it. And this, to me, felt very much like the conception of the soul or the spirit in physical form that comes out of the mouth, exhaled like breath. And to me, I want to talk a little bit about some of the connections that we have in both um, mythic as well as philosophical traditions of breath and why we have this connection between breath and the spirit, the substance that makes us literally shine. So first, the, um, the English word spirit, it comes from the Latin word spiritus. Spiritus literally translates to English as breath. So the word spirit in its linguistical roots is linked with the word breath. Um, also, the Hebrew and Greek words used in the Bible for spirit or soul are also words that can be but aren't always translated to the word breath. So there's a connection between this idea of a spirit and the idea of breath. There are also instances, for example, the American Henry Ford captured and encapsulated the last breath of Thomas Edison and held on to it as if there was something special in the quality of this breath, some sort of special ingenuity that could be captured. It had some sort of supernatural power. Lastly, there is a scientific experiment that postulates that how much air came out of Julius Caesar's breath when he was assassinated and where that air went and created a statistical model to suggest we have all at some point breathed the same breath that was the last breath of Julius Caesar. Oh my God. And let me tell you, I didn't read all the articles on this because they're a lot. This is a huge Huge thing that people have studied and put a lot of time into. Yes. I feel like I need to write a poem about that. That's amazing. We have all theoretically, according to this model, at some point breathed the same air that Julius Caesar did in his last breath. This is why you need to wear masks, people. You're breathing Caesar's particles. So, you know, like, in how, so how did this come about, this linkage between breath and the spirit? One When we die, we do have a final breath, the last breath that we have before we leave and before we we pass on to whatever happens next. Ancient people saw this and saw the connection between breathing and being alive, but did not intimately know what that was or why. And in it come the idea that the breath carried something about it that made life possible. A lot of early ideas that you see in both the West, the Near East, in India that I know of, think of the soul as something that escapes at the last breath and physically goes somewhere to its next phase, whether that's to the underworld to see the ferryman, whether that is to be reincarnated into another life form if you are a Hindu, or whether that is to, depending upon its purity, fly up to heaven or sink down into hell, maybe if you're a Christian. Theologically, 
there's been a lot of discussion about whether the breath and the soul are linked. And there are some interesting phrases that I want to highlight from the Bible. I got this from a religious website, and I didn't have time to fully vet and fact check it. So some of these may be not direct quotes, but paraphrases. But Genesis 2-7 says that, quote, The Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul, end quote. In here, we see a connection between the breath of God and the human soul. So God breathes in the soul to man, that God's breath is part of the reason humanity has a soul. This is sometimes also thought of as the basis for the Catholic and Christian idea of the Holy Spirit, that God's breath is this Holy Spirit and can transmit the will of God. And to give a quote here from the New Testament, this is from Luke 23, 46, quote, Jesus crying out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last breath, end quote. Again, we have Jesus committing his spirit to the Father, to God, linked to the last breath, as if the last breath is somehow connected to this spirit. Now, despite the linguistical and referential links between breath and spirit, most theologians that I found doing some Googling in discussing the nature of the soul do not actually believe that the breath and the soul are linked. The breath is considered a biological piece of, of the self versus the soul, which is considered a transcendental piece of the self. However, you can't deny that there is something to be said to the concept of the soul as a rational thing. What I mean by that is not a poetic thing. I might say my soul hurts when I watch footage from 9-11. I might look at my beautiful wife as she is nursing my child and say she is my soul mate. But I don't necessarily mean those in the soul in a rational way. I mean them more in a poetic sense. A romantic sense, yeah. Absolutely, that there's this thing called the soul and it's deep in us and we're connected to it poetically, artistically, metaphorically, but not necessarily rationally. If we think of the soul as a rational thing, a thing that exists, that can be understood, that can be studied, that can be learned of, it is very different than how we use it colloquially or poetically. Now, in Dr. Sleep, to connect all of these threads, I would argue that we are seeing a rational conception of the soul and that it is in part linked to breath by torturing by killing those that shine, they are able to excrete a part of the magic that is their life. Or I'd say magic's probably not the right term if we're talking in rationality. The soul part of their life, they're able to excrete it. And when they do, when it is purified through the process of torture, when harming the body makes it more potent, it makes it sharper, there's a direct link between body function as well as between the spirit or the steam and it comes through the mouth just like breath, but is different from breath. Because the true knot don't consume breath. They consume something else. It just happens to be linked biologically. It is breath adjacent. They're able to consume it. Conversely, when we see Danny, 
we see Dr. Sleep helping the first hospice patient and the patient dies with their last breath comes a little piece of steam out of them. And that steam to me suggests that even if you're not a child who shines, there is a little bit of this in everyone, very much like the idea that everyone has a soul. Oh, I think that's great. That is, yeah, that's incredible that you were able to provide so much context, but then tie in uh, not just the the vampires feeding on the steam, but the last breath of the people in the hospice. Yeah, and what does Stephen King do with this idea that the breath and the soul are linked and that there is this uh, psychic field that brings those things together? He weaponizes it. He shows us, uh, you know, monsters in a world where there is this incredible magical uh, force where something like the soul can be measured, and he shows us monsters who will feed on that because, like you said, the world is hostile and threatening. So even this, uh, this thing, this energy, this ka, this soul, this shine uh, will not protect you. It can be preyed upon because there is darkness in the world, and that darkness often comes from people. Absolutely. And so many of our myths and our folklores get represented in what the true not are. Yeah. The, plus things like the vampire, things like the boogeyman, things like these stories of mean people who hunt your children, these monsters, these goblins, these true not. And um, I just want to say, Midnight Myth listeners, and this may be TMI for some of you. <laughs> oh my God. Arthur has not fully cooperated. We've had to pause several times and as Laurel is doing this episode, she has been nursing our son. It is truly amazing. Laurel, you are absolutely my soulmate. May our steam link forever. <laughs> Wonderful. I think we have pushed this about as far as we can go, considering Arthur. Do you have any final thoughts? Just uh, shine on, you crazy diamonds. Until next time, be kind. Be kind.